Hello, and welcome to the Four Color Nerds Comics Podcast, episode 69, the excellent edition. I'm Matt, and I'm joined by our other nerds. Just the one, Ryan. Just Hello. The one. <laughs> Together, we take on this week's comics. Each week, we read a variety of comics and gather here to discuss them. This is a review show, so there will be spoilers. If you don't want to hear spoilers, take a break now and go read your week's books. Then come back. Each week, one of us will pick their favorite book, and that's our pick of the week. This week, I am that nerd. This week, the pick of the week goes to The Flintstones, number 10. And the companion song is the Flintstone theme covered by Power Glove, because like the comic, it's the Flintstones with metal. <laughs> so let's go ahead and take a listen. first book is The Flintstones number 10 by DC Comics, Buyer's Remorse, written by Mark Russell, pencils and inks by Stephen Pugh, colors by Chris Chuckery. Please tell me I'm reading that right. Chuckery? I think that's right. Chuckery. Okay. Yep, it is. Looked at the book. The Flintstones is probably going to sound like an odd pick for the pick of the week. This particular issue is a sad story that kind of parallels, uh, arguably, but I wouldn't argue about it because, well, I'm the one who's saying it parallels it, the kind of current state of affairs with politics. People who shouldn't really be in power making horrible decisions and screwing over everybody else because of some agenda that they might have. Not naming names. <laughs> Trump. That's kind of the surprising <laughs> thing about the Flintstones. And every issue we've read, everyone is always really surprised at how sharp and biting and insightful and sad and really way more complex than you would think the Flintstones should be. <laughs> I picked it up and not knowing what to expect. I know that DC's been doing these Hanna-Barbera but more mature books. I hadn't read any of them except for Future Quest and Future Quest wasn't really that kind of outside of the Hanna-Barbera adventure story realm. But I picked this book up and I'm like, what the fuck am I reading? <laughs> I mean, they made some allusions like they're going to... Barney and Fred are going to questionable theaters. And then they go and watch, basically, chick flicks. <laughs> the story is really just kind of a commentary that would fit in any kind of Flintstones episode. But it's taking that childhood stuff and kind of modernizing it making it a bit more mature but mature like we are because we're all like men children and i guess <laughs> women children <laughs> it's irreverent but it's still kind of grown up but it's still the flintstones i didn't think that i would like it as much as i did i, I mean one of our books and one of my books this week is world war tank girl and i really really wanted to pick that one but this one just this one just went out it's not real deep or anything else it's not something you really have to get too much into it's just really fun and it's just the flintstones but at the same time it's not oh god another mind-numbing episode of the flintstones that i've seen 1500 times because you know i'm old so what did you think Oh, I love the Flintstones. I think it's some of the sharpest commentary that you'll find just about anywhere. It's almost like the Adult Swim reboot of the Flintstones is kind of what this reminds me of. Uh, that, yes. Like, it's hard to think about the Flintstones as actually being a social commentary when it came out, but they did have stuff in there that was relevant to those times. And this one does kind of the same thing, that they're talking about issues that are relevant to us. Right. Everyone I've ever given an issue of the Flintstones to to read, first of all, they look at me like, why the hell are you handing me a Flintstones 
comic, you know? <laughs> and then when they read it, they're like, oh my god, that was great, give me all of them. Yeah. Like, it's really, really funny. Why didn't you hand me this before? Yeah, and I think it's actually pretty deep and touching, actually. Like I said, the commentary goes really deep, but they also have parts in this book that are surprisingly sad. Like, when the little vacuum cleaner dies... That's really sad. That cut me. Yeah. Did not expect that to do what it did. I was like, what? No. Yeah. So, you know, all the Flintstones appliances are animals. And they do this thing where they treat them like they're just animals or machines, but the actual animals talk to each other. Except for Dino, who they treat a little bit different. Right. But everything else is kind of an inanimate object. Right. But they have all of these relationships among themselves. So this sweet little Disney pink elephant hears about the chick flicks, like the women burying themselves that they go to watch. And he gets grabbed by the movie theater owner and made to clean the floors of a movie theater, which is just too much for him. So he ends up dying from it. And it's really sad because like all the other little appliances have like, a funeral for him. And they show you all these scenes throughout the other nine issues before this where he's interacting with them and making friends and all of this and at the end they just kind of throw him in the garbage can and you can see like his little tail sticking out and fred's like well it's just a thing and you're like oh my god (laughs) so callous but it's perfect for the flintstones yes and then the whole thing with wilma being an artist and doing her handprint paintings and then the way that they tie into art with that is just really good and the political stuff is good too without being too on the nose well, it's very on the nose, but I don't feel like it's mean-spirited, really. It's the Flintstones. You were saying earlier about how this is kind of how they were back then. They were. That's how you make that commentary. That's how you get away with it is, oh, it's a kid's show. I can say this sort of stuff, but at the same point in time, you're allowed to then go and say, hey, this is kind of crazy. It's really solid. The art is really good. It looks like the Flintstones, but it looks modern. When they do the animals and they're supposed to be cute and adorable, they're cute and adorable. When they have the dinosaurs and they're supposed to be war machines, they're terrifying. The art style is very, very good. I enjoyed this book on every level. I've never been disappointed by an issue of the Flintstones. Have you read any of the other Hanna-Barbera things besides... They were all pretty shitty. Oh, really? I didn't really like any of the other ones. All the other ones just felt like they hadn't really updated anything. Like, I read the Johnny Quest one. Actually, oddly enough, I liked the Scooby-Doo Apocalypse one a little bit. Not as much as this. Like, that one is better than you would think it would be. But the Johnny Quest one wasn't very good, in my opinion. Scooby-Doo one's okay. See, Future Quest I liked. I didn't like that very much. But I only read, like, two issues, which was enough for me to figure out I didn't like it. So (laughs) maybe I should have stuck with it. I don't know. Different strokes. <laughs> this isn't a perfect book, but it was a damn close perfect book. I'm going to give it, say, four and three quarters vacuum cleaners. See, to me, this one was perfect. While I was reading it, I was laughing about it and thinking about what I was reading at the same time. But then what made it really great is over the next few days, I was still thinking about it and still sad about the points I should be sad about, angry where I should be angry. Every emotion it tried to inspire in me, it hit. So I'm going to give it five yabba dabba do times yabba dabba do now <laughs> so we're still in dc comics over with batman for batman number 20 dc comics i am bane part five written by tom king pencils by david finch inks by danny mika and trevor scott colors by Jordi belair so 
Tom King does two things with Batman in almost every issue. Is you'll get kind of the straightforward story about what's happening. Batman punching people and solving crimes and, and all of that stuff. And then you'll get a narration. And the narration goes along with what's happening, but it's almost never by the person you think it is. And it always offers a deeper insight into the character. And that's exactly what this one does. And it's kind of hard to review both at the same time because they take kind of different paths throughout it. So I'm going to start with the what is actually happening in the comic, which is Bane and Batman slugging it out at the end. And there's all kinds of just really awesome dialogue that cuts to their core. As they're beating each other, Bane is telling him that this is the end of him. He's going to kill him. And Batman has this great part where he's like, I hear that every night from every villain I fight. He's like, but I'm still here. And then they start slugging it out. And Batman is losing, which is not really surprising when he goes toe to toe with Bane, because Bane is one of the few people on Earth that could and can beat the bat. So he's beating the hell out of him. And he's not only beating him physically, but he's torturing him both like mentally and in his soul. He's telling him, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kill everyone you love. And then when I'm done killing everyone you love, I'm going to climb up to the top of one of your gargoyles and watch your city burn. And Bane, I don't think, is making idle threats here. I think that is exactly what he plans to do, (laughs) you know? And then there's this great moment where Batman kind of, you realize this is all part of Batman's strategy. Because of course, everything is part of Batman's strategy, right? No matter how bad things seem to be going for him, that kind of ends up being his plan. He's lured Bane in close enough to him to be able to really strike at him. So he does this awesome, like, headbutt thing that knocks Bane out, and that's how Batman defeats him. Which is pretty cool, because you're brought to the lowest points of Batman, then he gets this awesome moment where he comes back. But then the thing that I think really elevates this book is throughout all of this, you've got this narration going, where it's summarizing what's happened pretty much since issue one of Batman, leading up to now. And it's talking about how the death of Batman, right, on that plane that he was supposed to die. He had made the decision that he was going to die, but then Gotham and Gotham Girls showed up and they were able to save the city and they can't die. I mean, there's later there's stuff if they use their powers too much, they will die, but they're essentially almost like Superman, but right. they're really tied into Gotham. And he sees this in them and knows that if he trains them, they'll be able to continue. Anyone else he trains is mortal, just like him, and will suffer the same fate and they'll die. And eventually there won't be another Batman. It's like almost like you'll make photocopies of photocopies until eventually you have nothing left. But if he could train them to do this, then he could actually save Gotham. Before, he could just kind of like hold back the flood. And now he has this vision and this idea that he could actually save the city. That's why he's so invested in saving a Gotham girl. So this narration goes on talking about this, and you come to realize that this narrator is not actually Batman talking about his plans or reflecting on them. It's actually Martha Wayne talking to her son. There's this part here where she's talking about when Batman's lying on the floor and Bane's beaten him. And this is where... The narration and what's happening on the page kind of like tie together where she's talking about all the steps he's taking towards the light. Like the first step he takes away from life, his physical pain fades away and then the mental anguish and guilt fades away and then the parts of his soul with like his parents dying, those fade away until finally he's like healed and he's with his parents. So he has this moment where he has to make a choice, right? Where he's finally reunited with his parents and he's in, I don't want to call it heaven because it doesn't call it that, but Bruce 
Bruce Wayne being reunited with his parents again is about as close as you're probably going to get to that for him. But he rejects this. He tells his mother, you're wrong, mom. All those things you're saying about those grand plans and all of that, it really comes down to one simple thing is that there was someone who needed help and I had to help them. And then there's this kind of sweet and touching moment where he leaves and his mother like grabs his hand and tells him probably the thing that you most want to hear from your parents, which is I'm proud of you. And that's kind of where it ends. And I thought it was spectacular. The art is really good. There's lots of really cool action. Both Bane and Batman have bits of dialogue that are pure brilliance that distill their characters down to (laughs) their venom or their willpower. Like they talk about Batman's basically two superpowers in here that he sees possibilities that no one else sees and that he doesn't give up. And that's what allows him to win in almost every situation. This, What did you think of it? It seems to be kind of a Dragon Ball Z fight because I've pretty sure that Batman and Bane have been punching it out for like four issues now but I don't mind because man it's a good fight. It's been this deep kind of as you were talking about the narration in the background. It's just been kind of drawing along. It gives me kind of a Dark Knight Returns feel a little bit uh, with the narration because Batman was just narrating the entire time through there. It's not Batman like you'd expect it to be uh, and that's it's good. It's got a deep sense of of that legacy of his parents is most of the time when his parents and it's just like, oh, my parents are dead. <laughs> <laughs> Martha, yeah. Did you know my parents died? Yes, Batman, we know your parents died. You've told us a hundred times. Hey, Batman, it's Mother's Day. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's actually like, you know, kind of like, what does it do to his head kind of thing? Where does that mental space go? And I really liked it. The fight was fantastic. The Like you're saying, the art is just fantastic in this book. Honestly, I would have stole this book instead of the other one from you. Just except for the fact the Flintstones was just surprising. This is pure Batman. It's not surprising me at all. This is exactly the way it should should go and it's a goddamn batman book <laughs> it shows you yet another example of why batman's batman the fight between him and bane is so bloody and visceral and i mean they're snapping bones they're puncturing lungs like you have the feeling that they are out to well bane's out to kill and batman is out to end him as well and that contrast with this kind of like almost airy artful poetry prose that's going on as the narration and with those two contrasted against each other that's what i think lifts tom king's books above is he can do all the batman and punch in detective stuff really really well too but he knows the characters so well he does and everybody was like oh Snyder's not gonna be writing it anymore and I'm like I'm okay with this Tom King guy and David Finch they are a perfect pair the inks are just perfect the colors are perfect for Batman I mean it's it's yet another renaissance for Batman (laughs) I think Tom King knows regret and pain and guilt and having to carry on throughout all of those things anyway and those translate to Batman really really well honestly what What really could prepare you for writing Batman more than having been a CIA counterintelligence person in the Iraq War? Like, I can't think of any life experience that a normal, plausible human being could have that will prepare you. Other than a billionaire losing your parents in the streets of a crime-ridden city. (laughs) Yeah, but I have the feeling if that happened, you'd end up more like a spoiled Kardashian. Spoiled Kardashian. (laughs) Would be what would probably likely happen. There's actually one of the, was it the Multiversity miniseries thing that the Grant Morrison did? There is a DC universe where everybody's just kind of spoiled rich kids. It's like the superhero's kids. They've defeated all the crime. So Batman and Superman, their kids are just these posh, Kardashian-y type, let me take a selfie kind of people. It's weird. Yeah, I really like this book. So what would you rate it? I 
think I would give it four and a half, my little boy, all grown up. And I'll give it four and a half. So proud of you. Ah, it's so good. (laughs) So another book that isn't as deep, but I still thought was pretty good, was World War Tank Girl Number 1 by Titan Comics, written by Alan Martin, art by Brett Parson. It's not a deep book. It's Tank Girl. You don't really want it to be deep. It's just supposed to be fun and punk rock. It's It's a a damn damn good good time. time, yeah. The story is basically exactly what it sounds like. Tank Girl somehow gets just dropped in the middle of World War II in the middle of a battle where it's looking like the Allies are going to get their asses handed to them. It starts off, you know, St. Rockville, the Ardennes Forest region, Belgium, January 1945. You know, they're getting their asses handed to them and all of a sudden, a la Terminator, naked Tank Girl just walks out and just starts putting together some clothes just so she's not bare-ass naked and just fucking waging war on the Nazis. And she continues throughout the entire rest of the book just being Tank Girl. She's not really impervious to getting shot at. It's just that for whatever reason, people miss. She's just balls to the wall, just going crazy and going at it with kind of a punk rock attitude where everybody else is getting shot all around her and she's just unapologetically tank. And then in the background, you've also got Jet who lands and uh, I can't ever remember the kangaroo's name. In the movie, it's the kangaroo who she kind of hooks up with. He ends up in like a Nazi castle that the Eagle's Nest is, I think, what it was called. Yeah. And he's kind of like, I'm the cook. And they're like, okay, we'll cook something or I'll kill you. This is an adult comic. It is not for kids. For several pages, everybody's running around naked. <laughs> so it's not super detailed or anything. It's meant to be irreverent and fun. And it's not a deep book. It's not something you really have to know anything about Tank Girl, other than the fact that she's kind of punk rock troublemaker from Australia. <laughs> That's just kind of it. I liked it. What did you think? My experience with Tank Girl is very, very limited because Tank Girl came out for me at a very impressionable age. The movie did anyway. And my impression of it was this is terrible. So, I didn't like the movie, so I didn't read any Tank Girl comics. This is actually the first Tank Girl comic that I've actually sat down and read. And I have to say, this is fun. It's exciting. The action moves along. I never, even though this book is actually pretty long, I never felt like I was reading a very long book. But I also felt like everything I was reading was entertaining and, like you're saying, irreverence, and I enjoyed it. Comics are all kind of like this one. It's just Tank and her friends getting into chaos i rarely like to admit <laughs> that i'm wrong but i have to say you <laughs> me no never never i think i was wrong about tanker at least with the comics like i still haven't seen the movie probably and well since it came out so i can't really reevaluate that but i liked these comics i would read these comics you know as they come out continuously i don't know if i liked it enough to go back and read the back catalog or not but everything i got here was enjoyable and in a freewheeling anarchist punk rock kind of action-y vibe that was lighthearted and fun. Like you were saying, it's like an adult comic. There is nudity, but it's not particularly sexual. I am curious as to how they ended up back in World War II. There's never... I've only read probably less than 10 Tank Girl books in my life, probably around 8 or 9. I've never been able to make really any sense any of them. I just accepted with the vibe of this that like, this happened, how it happened, doesn't really matter. Yes. He's here now. That's what you have to do every time you pick up a Tank Girl book, and it's perfectly fine because that is the intended thing that you're feeling that you're supposed to have when you're reading those books. They're just chaos. I just took it as like almost
almost like a Conan story. This is a point in time. This happens. Because, like, the comic isn't addressing how she got there either. They don't really talk about it at all. They're just like, okay, I'm transported back in time to 1945, but I get to kill a bunch right. of Nazis, so let's let's do it, <laughs> you know? Yes. I figure with a fairly realistic book that also has a talking kangaroo and lots of grenades getting kicked into people's mouths and shoved down their pants and things like that, you know, I'm not going to ask too many <laughs> plot questions or point out the holes with it. The violence in this almost reminds me of if you took, like, a Looney Tunes cartoon and set it yes. to, like, the Ramones, <laughs> you know, and blended those two together, that that would be what you would get. Wow, that seems to be your kind of recurring theme in this week's episode is take classic cartoons and put them to heavy metal or punk rock. <laughs> you get something pretty darn good. I didn't think it was a perfect book or anything. It's Tank Girl. It's crazy fun. So, but I gave it probably I'm going to steal what you mentioned just there. I'm going to give it four and a quarter grenades kicked into a mouth. <laughs> I liked it. I will give it four. Let's roll this <laughs> fucker all the way to Berlin. Yes. Speaking of rolling things to Berlin, our next book. Go with it. Just go with it. Not every segue is good. <laughs> Considering they had to recall and ended production of almost all segues, most segues aren't very good, but we'll go with it. <laughs> so Superman number 20 from DC Comics, Black Dawn, Chapter 1, written by Patrick Gleason and Peter J. Tomasi. Pencils by Patrick Gleason, inks by Mick Gray, colors by John Calise. So this one, there's a couple things going on here. This is the Superman that I want to read in general. I think that the tone for it is just perfect for the place that I'm at in my life and what Superman, the tone that it should strike. I also never thought that Superman and Batman versus Milk <laughs> would be an interesting story, but I enjoyed this a lot. So the basic story is that Superboy is kind of readjusting to his life and trying to figure out who his like, new parents are because they're not exactly the same as they used to be. And Batman and Damien show up like in the shadows of the night to investigate something. And there's actually this, I thought, really funny scene where Batman and Damien are lurking in the barn being all dark and mysterious mysterious and Superman's going out there to meet with them and you know it's all American versus the night in the shadows conversation while Superboy is kind of listening in because this was kind of a kickoff to the beginning of Trinity also this is almost an exact how it happened before but then like Lois shows up and turns on the light and is like you guys are fucking idiots <laughs> it's freezing ass cold out here we're in the middle of nowhere we're not in Gotham like stop lurking in the shadows and come inside and sit down at the table and have some pie and then there's this awesome scene at least to me awesome where they're sitting there eating pie <laughs> and it's like Norman Rockwell painting and Batman looks so uncomfortable. It's just... Doesn't your dad like pie? Superman is serving Batman apple pie, you know, and Batman's having none of it and the kids are talking about how Batman doesn't eat pie. Batman doesn't eat pie. It would have been the greatest, like, he's more of a cake person. <laughs> <laughs> Batman doesn't do carbs, I think, is what it comes down to. <laughs> Batman's all paleo. And so the problem that Batman is there to investigate is why Superboy isn't powerful. He should be, according to Batman's theory, more powerful than even Superman is, which I don't understand why he thinks that, but that's his theory. But his powers are being held back for some reason. So Batman's doing all of his investigation and like, well, what are you feeding the kid? They explain it's all organic and locally raised food and they get their milk from like this dairy. So Batman goes on an investigation to this dairy that's nearby which at first I was kind of thinking that this was going to be like a highlight of how paranoid Batman is in Norman Rockwell America and that his paranoia is misplaced <laughs> but nope Batman is not an idiot so <laughs> there's this scene where he goes into the barn and he's confronting this cow and he like milks the cow to get the milk to analyze and there's like this black goo in there that's like almost like that it's like venom cow I was just going to say the symbiote from Marvel and it comes out and starts attacking 
attacking him. So there's this mysterious figure there that's, I guess, corrupting the dairy cows in the new version of Smallville. Sounds ridiculous. And it kind of is, but it's kind of awesome at the same time. I really like this. I think it hits all the tones that I want. Superman is indelibly Superman in all of his square-jawed 1950s Americana. Batman is the Dark Knight in the shadows here. And the interplay between them is great. The kids are great. I like Lois's sort of rejection of the whole ridiculousness of this whole thing. I just, I enjoyed it. The art was fantastic. There's actually an opening scene where he's flying along and there's a red bird and a blue bird flying next to him, which I really liked for the red and blue energy of Superman there. And you kind of see everyone looking up in the sky as he's flying and they don't say anything, but it's very clearly like an homage to, what's that in the sky? Is it a bird? Is it a plane? The art does really well with this. And I never thought I would see a more sinister cow (laughs) in my life. So I really enjoyed this issue of Superman. What'd you think of it? I really hope this stuff keeps on going. I kind of agree with you on all the points. feels good to be reading Superman, which it hasn't for the last few years. There's been some bright points, but the New 52 Superman really didn't click for me until his very end. And then I was like, aww. It's almost like it forgot that Superman was supposed to be inherently good and noble and inspiring and almost fun in a way. They remembered it, but then they're like, yeah, so this isn't working. We're going to restart this thing. Yeah, but I just figured it out. I'm really hoping that this is going to be indicative of what happens over the entirety of DC Comics because it's, you know, New 52 is not the worst thing that's ever happened to comics, but it's not the best thing either. It had some some neat things pop up, but I didn't think it was needed. We had a good universe going right before New 52 came out. It's just that sales might not have been super great. This right here, though, this is what I want to be reading, especially in a Superman comic. This would be a great world's finest mm-hmm. with Batman and Superman together yes. and the, the sons together and then Lois just pulling the ear was just fantastic. It's just, it's well written. The art is fantastic. The coloring is great. The story itself is just really well done. It's plotted out well. It carries along well. They get the character Batman. They get the character Superman. Lois, they're not ignoring that weird shit just happened and they're two people together. I'm kind of curious as to about what right. and Lois was kind of getting to with the whole, are we going to talk about this? I'm really interested to see where it goes from here. I'm really interested to see even where Venom Cow goes and kind of where Superman is going. It's, it's really, really interesting to me. I feel also like editorially, they have their shit together. They know what's happening in all the different books. Like they mentioned the plot of what's going on in Super Sons. The two kids are like, oh no, do you think they found out about Amazo? They know what's happening in the other books, which sometimes gets lost. And that bugs me. It's like, do you not have any senior editorial staff that's reading everything? Or at least being told what is going on in everything and going, oh yeah, that's great, but you gotta pay attention. This happened over here. They need to be doing this. It gives you the sense of the larger world. That's why when we're watching a superhero or, you know, comic book movie and they put in like a Easter egg in there, it's because somebody's paying some fucking attention, right? Right. I love seeing that in the books too because it's not just something you should catch in the movies. Like in the background, they've got, you know, Adam Warlock's fucking cocoon at the collector. You need that in the story itself, like the greater arcing story and the little tidbits that just kind of the shit that gets whispered on the side that you don't think is going to get heard. You need to have those things there. It does really well. I mean, it helps that Peter J. Tomasi writes a lot of these books. So you have one person kind of guiding it. But this one was just a joy to read. I'm really enjoying the whole Superman world that they're building. 
Superman, for most of my life, has been kind of bogged down in over-complex plots that are happening and loses that sense of fun because it's they haven't really been able to figure out how to make someone who's so earnest and all the things about Americana that are good relevant in the world here. And I think they've cracked that code here. They, well, they probably sat down and watched some of the DC animated universe because <laughs> they had cracked that code already. I'm glad to see that the yes. you know the actual books are doing what the animated stuff has done. Hopefully the cinematic, the movies and all that can freaking go watch some cartoons. And the interactions between Batman and Superman are awesome. And I kind of like how in the Superman books, how Batman almost, I want to say ridiculous he seems at times, where he's like pulling out their boxes of cereal and like analyzing them with his bat gear and just enjoy that Batman is a crazy paranoid man <laughs> that Superman has that to deal with. That feels right. Yes. <laughs> that they nail, you know, this feels like it's from his perspective. And like I said, I never thought a Venom cow would be something I was interested in following the plot line for, but damned if I wasn't. So I will give this four and a half spoiled milks. I will give it four as well, and I'm going to give it four Venom cows. Speaking of things that are elevated, Royals number one by Marvel Comics. Another future song written by Al Ewing. Pencils and inks by John Boy Myers. Colors by Ryan Kinnaird. Kinnaird? I don't know. I apologize to anybody <laughs> whose names we ever have to say because they need to come with pronunciation guides. So the book opens with the Inhumans. It's basically the royal family, but the Inhumans going to take down the last of the new Inhumans. That is kind of looks like a bit like Slimer, but with like a skeletal structure, just kind of rampaging and destroying an area. So they're trying to collect them, get it under control. It's like if Slimer and like the Cloverfield monster had a love child. That's kind of what it looks like. Well, I've not seen Cloverfield. So Oh, I will take your word on that. But it does look like Slimer and something else. But they're basically taking that on. And then you see, of all people, Marble Boy pops up at New Etalon. And he's there to kind of offer them hope. Not everybody seems to be happy with the hope. But Lakagon is always kind of a sourpuss. He never looks happy about anything. He basically shows up and says, Hey, you know, I'm from another place. And uh, I know the secrets and stuff. Let's go fix you guys. And they're all like, Oh, I guess we're going to have to go do this. And they're like, Uh, what? <laughs> Medusa is all, nope, we don't really have any other choice, so let's go. And then they, you know, start off on their adventure into space and with Marvel Boy, who's one of the weirdest cryptic characters ever. I had to look him up when I was reading this because I've read him and I thought he was just like another one of Marvel's kids or something, but apparently he's Marvel Boy from another universe. Right. Or like he's a like the love child of the Kree who didn't go crazy bad but in this he's got like the supreme intelligence in a jar. I thought they did a good job explaining his powers because at first they're like he's bred with insects to give him powers and you're like well that's kind of strange but then there's like a person who's like I can control emotions and higher thoughts and I can't turn it on or off and he's like gotcha cockroach brain engaged. You're like oh okay I guess he can turn off those parts of himself (laughs) or turn them on so kind of interesting. Seems kind of useful. It's interesting it's just I'd never realized that that was his whole story before. I I thought he was literally just another Kree character. So it was a little neat to see kind of a little bit more of him. I don't know why other writers of Marvel Boy didn't have that in there. I guess prevalent. I guess they just wanted to literally just have him be a stand-in for a Captain Marvel type character, but not quite as powerful. So they're like, eh, I'm not gonna say anything. So I thought it was good. The only complaint that I have about the book is I really, really can't stand this artist at fucking all. I've complained about this art style before in the past. It just looks like somebody's 
is trying to do graffiti comic books. It's really jaggy lines with these really weird kind of like aura outlines on the characters. It's like anime, but really stylized, cartoony anime, the stuff I wouldn't watch on Cartoon Network sort of stuff. I just, it irks the fuck out of me looking at his art. I just don't like it. It looks like, what's that guy's name? Joe Majura. It gives me that same sort of feel and I just don't like it. But the story at the same time, I'm interested in to see where the story is going, which is still fucking irritating me because it's the Inhumans. I'm like, why are you making me care about the Inhumans? This is a weird week. I'm liking Tank Girl. I'm interested in Super Cows and I'm defending anime art styles. This is very strange. (laughs) Well, this isn't anime. It's just it feels like people who watched a bunch of anime, but at the same time, their main art style is like graffiti is how I would explain this away. It's like as far away from the Superman art as you could get or like even the Flintstones or something like that. It's really stylized, but not in the kind of way that I like stylized. The people aren't particularly good or bad to me. Like, I don't mind them that much. I don't like the way Medusa's face looks, and I think that's because she has a helmet that makes her face look really narrow. Like, that's the only face that really irks me. But I do, but that's counterbalanced by the fact that the dude can draw some fucking amazing spaceships and futuristic cities and dinosaurs and and all of that. Which you can see a little bit in the beginning, the very, very beginning of the book, where it's like thousands of years in the future, and there's like the last inhuman and all this weird stuff that I wasn't really following, but that looked pretty cool. They're doing one really smart thing, I think, here, which is getting the Inhumans to fuck away from the rest of the Marvel Universe so they can go and do and be their own thing. I agree. And have their own little adventure. I agree. It's basically like there's still going to be Inhumans on Earth, but it's the Inhumans nobody gives two fucks about. And that's my problem with them trying to make the Inhumans into the new mutants. Not the new mutants, but the new stand-in for mutants was that they're just fucking mutants at, at that point, right? If you're introducing new characters and, oh, they suddenly had a mutation happen to them because of some thing that happened in some gene that they had. I'm like, "Uh uh-huh. Yeah. That's just mutants. The only Inhumans that are special are the ones that were around in the 60s, right? And those are the only characters you're going to give a shit about. Otherwise, they're just like the 1,500 castaway mutants in the X-Men. I mean, there are other Inhuman characters I care about, but there are characters I care about that they decided to make Inhumans. Like, I don't care about them because they're Inhumans. Like, I care about Miss Marvel very, very much. I like, was it Devil Dinosaur? And I like Luna. Double Dinosaur's a mutant. Yeah. Well, right, but Luna... The one that they replaced Moon Boy with. Yeah, Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur. Those are Inhumans also. But the fact that those two characters are Inhumans is almost irrelevant to their character. I'm irritated that they decided to make Miss Marvel an Inhuman a little bit. They made this cool character and then they attached her to that. And I'm like, okay. Yeah. It's secondary. I don't care. And if they pop up, oh, by the way, she's an Inhuman. I'm like, okay, she's a great yeah. character. I don't fucking care that she's an Inhuman. Right. It's not important to her character, but for these guys, it's important that they're the Inhuman, quote-unquote, royal family. And because, like we're saying, Inhumans and mutants are so similar to each other and occupy the same storytelling purpose in the Marvel Universe in a lot of ways, you need to separate those two out to give them their own stages and places to be. So I think it's really smart to do that. This almost feels like it's going to be like Inhumans Guardians of the Galaxy type book. They're going to be off in space, they're going to be investigating stuff, or maybe even some of the ways they do stuff with Fantastic Four a lot of the times. Well, the X-Men, the Claremont books, they went off into space quite a lot, too. Yeah, I wasn't crazy about that part of the X-Men books, honestly. (laughs) I found it very confusing. I am also very intrigued also about what's happening with Medusa. I think that's pretty interesting. 
It's interesting, kind of, but it was also reminiscent of one of the final Fantastic Four story arcs, where it was basically Reed's mutation was starting to kill him, and I think everybody else also sure. had the weird cancer. So I'm like, oh, yeah. they take off on some weird trip, and you find out that they're dying. Yeah, where Reed was basically taking his family on the last road trip for Dad, yeah. you know, his terminal. He's too sick to do anything. Yeah. The book, it was good. It was well-written. It's just not my style of art. It might be other people's, just not mine. I have to say, I, for probably, this is true for a lot of these books, is I'm interested in reading Inhumans for the first time in a long time. I feel like they've got their own place and story to tell now, and they're not just because Marvel is in a dispute with Sony over the rights for the X-Men. Fox. Yeah, Sony's Spider-Man, Fox has X-Men, and because they don't have the rights for those, this is my opinion of what Marvel's doing, is they're like, we're not going to spend our efforts on increasing your intellectual property rights. We're still going to keep them, like we're still going to have Spider-Man books and X-Men books, but they're not going to be that great. And now that it seems like they're realizing they can make a lot of money by working together, that they're allowing them to be cool again. Yeah. Which means they gotta undo what they did with the Inhumans and shove them off into space, which I'm cool with because the story seems interesting, and you can't totally undo the Inhumans because you also have Inhumans movies and TV shows coming out, so yeah. you do have to keep them going, too. So they were smart to separate them. You have to give them something to be that's interesting and fits in with the character. They're sci-fi characters. Put them in a sci-fi setting. Perfect place for them. So I'm taking away a point for the art because I really fucking hate it, but I thought it was good, so I'm gonna give it probably... I'll give it a 3.75. I'm dying. I will give it four. This is the royal penance. Ooh, good one. Good one. Speaking of... No, there's no penance in this book. There's no penance in this one. This is Steve Rogers' Captain America number 15, <laughs> written by Nick Spencer, pencils and ink by Javier Peña and Andres Quinado, Quinaldo, colors by Rachel Rosenberg. So this is kind of where a lot of the points of a lot of books come together. This is basically the showdown between Captain America and the Red Skull to kind of tie people into what's happened with the Red Skull. The Unity Squad has captured him. They've taken back Professor X's brain from him. So he's no longer like the world's most powerful telepath. Now he's just kind of this almost sad, broken down man who's like hobbling around. I feel like he should be in like a bathrobe and have like a walk. He seems pretty beat down in this issue. So S.H.I.E.L.D. and HYDRA are having this conflict in this. It's actually the one, the Avengers movie, that they had the thing collapse. Sarkovia. Yes. HYDRA has moved in there and has kind of taken over the country, and they're holding the world hostage because they have nuclear weapons. And the Red Skull has pre-recorded this kind of threat to the world that he has no intention of using these nuclear weapons unless, of course, he's like isolated from the world international community or feels under economic pressure because there are sanctions against him. But, you know, if those things can go away, you know, maybe they can join the world on a more normal footing. And... Sharon Carter, to her benefit, is like, hell no, we don't appease Nazis in the middle of Europe. No matter what they have, we can't allow them to have a foothold there. And then she's also like, and this is a pre-recorded message, the Red Skull is captured, this is bullshit. Then they're like, no ma'am, actually, you know, he just escaped from prison, of course, a little while ago. So this threat is active. So she is engaging like a shield helicarrier to go there. And what you find out is Captain America is confronting the Red Skull in his version of the Eagle's Nest. And you get kind of these flashbacks of the first time he confronted him in 1945 where the Red Skull finally seized control of Hydra. And this is where you get the idea that this is where Hydra changed. That Hydra used to be an organization dedicated to strength and like ruthless efficiency. But they linked themselves to the Nazi cause and then the Red Skull kind of took over Hydra and changed what it 
it really is. And that Steve is more, like, <laughs> sounds funny to say, more old school Hydra than Nazi Hydra. And he's been trying to destroy the Red Skull and take control of Hydra for what it is. Like, Steve's version of Hydra is like libertarian Hydra, <laughs> not alt-right Hydra. <laughs> You get these scenes where he's finally confronting the Red Skull and he's kicking the shit out of this old man. Like he's beating him while the Red Skull is defenseless and bloody and he throws him out a window and he lands on like a bunch of rocks and is killed. At first I was like, maybe he's not dead. Then I looked at the picture and like his legs twisted ways, his like skulls cracked open. He's pretty much dead, which of course means in about two years he'll be back in the comics. But for now, he's dead. And Steve has control of Hydra. He's got crossbones and Sin and Lady Hydra, Armin Zola, like he's got all the Hydra people behind him. Madam Hydra is there and they're going to sort of reforge Hydra here. You find out that one of the things that the Allies were working on in World War II was actually the Cosmic Cube, was like their version of like the Manhattan Project here. The part that I thought was really interesting was when Captain America went to confront the Red Skull, is the Red Skull basically spilled the secrets to him, like, hey, I fucked with you with the Cosmic Cube, you're not really loyal to Hydra, so you don't need to (laughs) kill me to take control of Hydra, and Captain America is like, no, you revealed the inner truths of me, so he's really deep down the rabbit hole of what the cosmic cube has done to him he's bought it hook line and sinker the changes the cosmic cube made to him that kobik made are not just on the surface level that can be undone with reality and facts it's straight to his core now this issue really brings hydra under his control explains what hydra is according to steve shows that he is now not just like a misguided hero that he is transforming into one of the major villains of the marvel universe and sets up secret empire that's really what this issue does what did you think of this well well, I've never been the biggest fan of this freaking storyline. Right. I thought that the art was really good and it's well written. I just don't like the plot. I think it's kind of tired. The whole, oh, we're going to take this great patriotic superhero and make him do a supervillain. And I'm like, okay, let me know when he's back to being a superhero because that's what's going to happen. And it's just, sure. in my personal opinion, I think it's a bad idea that's being done extremely well. The books are really good. They're written really good. I just don't like the story. I can see where you're coming from that because, I mean, I think the idea is an interesting way to change up things. And I agree it's done well, but a lot of people have a big problem with the very premise of this idea. But I think if actually read the books, you couldn't argue argue with the execution of it and the quality behind it like i think the writing's good the art's good all of that but if you don't like the basic premise you're gonna have a big problem with this and it's not the patriotism or it's not like i don't want you messing with captain america he's captain america you can't do that him you can't make him bad guy it's not i don't care about that it's just like i think taking superheroes and making them into supervillains is trite because the number one thing at both dc and marvel is status quo you can change it for a couple years but especially now with the movies we're gonna have to have this guy back to be a superhero pretty soon. Yeah, I agree. The other thing that I did enjoy about this art-wise is one thing that they've done really well is the Red Skull. When the Red Skull is giving his speeches, it's like they took old footage of Hitler giving his speeches, which, and this is, I'm not ignoring morality here, the point I'm making is separate from morality, is one of the greatest orators of all time. The way that he could use his entire body and the energy to rile this crowd up for madness and evil, the way that they use the Red Skull and pivot those and copy those motions has been fantastic and then when you contrast that with the weakness and vulnerability they show with the skull here i just i really enjoyed that 
aspect of the art. That they were able to build him up as being really powerful and this amazing orator who can whip people into madness and evil. And then at the end, you see him as this kind of like broken man in his hidden secret bunker, which again parallels Hitler's rise and fall, like where he's in the bunker addicted to painkillers and opium and all of that and like a broken man at the end of his life. I think that they did those two parallels really well in this. Agreed. I think the main reason to read this is it because Secret Empire is going to be a thing and you probably want to know what's going to happen. If you've been reading the Captain America arc, you want to see the end of it, but probably either way, you probably want to pick this up and read it so you know what's going to happen in the next thing that will change everything forever for six months. (laughs) Yes. I think in the end, I would give this three and a half Hail Hydras. I will give it probably three and a half as well, just because the idea irks me, but the rest of it is really good. But I'll give it three and a half skulls splattered against the rocks. Oh. <laughs> All right, so taking us over to a new beginning for Marvel. Again. <laughs> Again. New, new, new beginning. X-Men Gold number one by Marvel Comics. Back to Basics. Part one. <laughs> Written by Mark Guggenheim. Pencils by Adrian Staff. Inks by Jay Leister. And colors by Frank Martin. Now, this particular issue, and I don't really see it, but this particular issue has had a bit of controversy lately, and I've been scanning through my copy of it. I don't see the details that they were talking about, that they were complaining about offending people. Like, literally, I can't find them in the book. Uh, Supposedly, somebody put in some hate speech or something. So there's codes in here that tie into... uh, We're getting into an area that I don't really want to dwell on too much, but there's symbols and numbers in here that tie into, like, Indonesian right-wing politics and some fundamentalist Islamic stuff. Like, there's a scene where Kitty Pride is confronting some protesters and that there's these numbers in the background that tie into, in a way that I'm not entirely clear on, other than it does, <laughs> that there's, like, one of the numbers on the restaurant and, like, a t-shirt the guy is wearing tie into that protest. Wow, okay. Well, I mean, artists have been sneaking in codes and dick pictures and clouds that spell out sex or whatever. They've been putting things in comic books for a long time. Yeah. It's unfortunate that they did it in this case with stuff that is kind of the exact opposite of what the X-Men should be about. Uh, And there's also a part where they're playing baseball and Colossus's like jersey has a reference to a particular verse in the Quran that people interpret as being very anti-Christianity and anti-Judaism. So people don't like that. Odd that this creative staff would have put that in there. No, the one guy snuck it in. Marvel is going to retract it in all future copies. Like it doesn't influence into the actual story at all. It's just, I think it's very unfortunate in a story that's about inclusion and just like all X-Men stories are, right? Coming together and overcoming like prejudice and stuff that you have this kind of stuff in here. Yeah. But on to the actual. The actual book, I mean, kind of for me carried over a little bit much from X-Men Prime, but I got us going with that whole, hey, remember the X-Men? People are hate them because they're mutants, all right? And they like to play baseball because <laughs> it's most of the book was mutants are special. It's hard to be a mutant. People hate mutants. Yeah. It's basically showing the kind of theme of where they're trying to go is uh, we've got the X-Men. They've had some hard times like their entire existence. But now they've set themselves down in the middle of everything. But they want to be superheroes. Not just people dealing with when mutants pop up, but just, you know, straight up superheroes fighting the good fight, trying to just be mixed in with the Avengers or the Fantastic Four, just another group out there. I'm still not agreeing with them. And I think Kitty might be second guessing herself on as to the uh, let's teleport the mansion in the middle of Central Park because they get a bill for $18 million for like was it the first month's rent yeah well they do point out it's the most valuable real estate in the world you know and i like that where logan's like you want me to stab him <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> that was great. The story basically just kind of goes through its first issue storyline, kind of settling down the plot, the setting. People hate them. They want to be superheroes. But by the end of it, we get to, okay, we're going to go fight some supervillains. They're attacking the United Nations. And, oh, look, it's the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, which is classic, classic X-Men storyline, but it's a new lineup, kind of. It looks like Avalanche is there with Pyro. And then two people that I don't really recognize. And one that I'm hoping is Magma, but, like, she went crazy or something. Yeah, I'm not sure who all these people are. Magma's a new mutants character. There's somebody over on the side that looks like the sod and, like, a brood in the background. <laughs> so, got some new characters, but it's a, a new group of Brotherhood of Evil Mutants that they're gonna settle down to fight. All in all, the book to me it's it's like a first issue book but it didn't have the heart of the x-men really to it it was just kind of like okay we've got these points that we have to hit and we're hitting these points i'm hoping that we from here can kind of grow it out to be something a little bit more more than just hitting bullet points it didn't seem special and a lot of the x-men i mean me growing up maybe it was just because i was a teenager at the time the x-men kind of spoke to me back in the 80s and 90s and they just don't speak to me anymore and maybe it's now because you know i'm gonna be 40 this year i'm just getting old i don't know <laughs> you got old man Logan to identify with. But he's too old. <laughs> you need middle-aged Logan. I need middle-aged Logan. Which I had, and then they covered him in freaking adamantium. I get this whole superhero thing, but Westchester, kind of close enough. I think they should just put the mansion back to where it was, and not in the middle of Central Park. I know it gives them some... It gives them new things to interact with. Yeah, new things to interact. I don't know that it was really the greatest idea in the world. So, I honestly, it's just, the mansion's been destroyed enough times, and you put it in the middle of fucking Central Park. Shit, it's gonna get blown up. And then we're going to have, oh God, Central Park got blown up. It's the mutant's fault. It doesn't feel like the X-Men quite yet. It feels like they're trying to be the X-Men. I agree with a lot of your points, but I disagree on some major points too. To me, this does feel like the X-Men. I don't really feel like they're necessarily checking off bullet points, but I feel like they're doing them very well. Like I feel like each character gets a moment to be freaking awesome. You get, Storm gets to electric the shit out of somebody when they ask her like, what's your master strategy for taking him down? And she's like, lightning, just blast him. I enjoyed that. I thought it was awesome when there's a building collapsing and Kitty Pride jumps on it and rides the building down while phasing the building out so that when it impacts the ground it doesn't kill a bunch of people like in Superman Returns that they're actually trying to help people. Logan is fucking awesome in this. He gets to carve people up. He gets to be that kind of I've had enough of your shit when the guy from the mayor's office shows up. He gets to be that kind of cranky old man that says things that you wish he wouldn't. I think they nail that. You get Nightcrawler being kind of introspective and the mournful soul of the group. I just think everyone kind of gets their moments. I'm not really crazy about Phoenix or whatever they're calling her now. Prestige? Yeah, Prestige. I'm not too crazy about her. I don't think she really fits in with this, but I'm not terribly upset about it. Well, so for Prestige, I've got a couple comments there. One, she's dressed up like a Shi'ar. Rachel Summers hates the fucking Shi'ar with a passion. They killed her entire adopted family. Why would she fucking dress up like one of them? I don't get that. Two, what the fuck is the Prestige supposed to mean? Agreeing with you here on the Phoenix, or Rachel, she's just like added on there so that you do something with that character. She's sticking out. I do think that there were some really cool points. I'll agree with you there. The building going down was awesome, but them being surprised at that, I mean, she phased an entire fucking metal bullet through the planet. What are you surprised about? True. It's a great idea, except for now you've got a building stuck in another building. <laughs> I like, I mean, Kitty Pryce is one of my, much like Brian Michael Bendis, she's one of my favorite characters. I also enjoyed the interaction between her and Peter, where it's almost like this tension, but she's like, I've moved on. I can have dinner with you as a friend, but not as something more and you want to be something more so not 
going to do that. They pointed out a couple times is that she commented about her whole thing about dating people named Peter. The thing I find funny is that in the Ultimate Universe, that Kitty Pride dated that Peter Parker for a little bit. Yep. So I'm like, what is with you people and Kitty Pride and people named Peter? <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> She's got a Peter complex. Yeah. There was also this kind of really long summary of like the X-Men stuff in the back. Frank, I didn't read that shit. <laughs> I'm like, I know what's happened. I started to and I'm like, I know all this. I don't care. I read like the first two pages and I'm like, you haven't told me anything new. Like, it's not like, this is what happened and here's the secret reason why it happened. It's just like, here's what happened in the last 30 years of X-Men comics. <laughs> like, every year it gets its own panel, pretty much. We wouldn't be reading this book if we hadn't read the other 30 years. So, thanks. It's neat and all that. Yeah, I thought that was a waste of pages. But up until that point, it's actually 24 pages long and then the rest of that, which is longer because your normal comic book is like 18 to 22 pages. So they're not really skimping necessarily on the pages. They're just making it a really big issue by adding about eight pages of like padding to it. Yeah. I enjoyed it. I felt like it really it did capture the feel of the X-Men. I think you're right that they checked off all the essential points of the X-Men, but I think they did it with heart and skill, which it makes the unfortunate stuff with the art even more pisses me off. You know, the fact that they did it to the X-Men makes me more upset about than what they actually inserted in. That's just wrong to put that in with X-Men stuff. It just makes no sense here. I will give it three and a half. Let's phase this fucking building through another building. I will give it four and a half your driving. So those were the books we read this week. To check out our other podcasts, Broke Gaming and Cut the Cord, as well as other nerd shenanigans. <laughs> okay, let's try that again. <laughs> as well as other nerd shenanigans, go check out fourcolornerds.com. Please comment. We love it. Or our Facebook page. You can also follow us on Twitter or at Instagram. You can find the podcast on iTunes and Google Play Music, on SoundCloud, on Stitcher, and on Podcast Addict. Be sure to rate. Be sure to... God damn it. <laughs> Be sure to rate. Review. And subscribe. Come back next week for another episode. Until then, keep reading, nerds.